Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 199th edition of the program. I'm Stefan Christoph, recording this from Mexico City. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be sharing a conversation that I had with Aisha Vamuri, who is a co-editor of a book called Solarities, Seeking Energy Justice. It's described this way, Solarities considers the possibilities of organizing societies and economies around solar energy and the challenges of a just and equitable transition away from fossil fuels. Far from presenting solarity as a utopian solution to the climate crisis, it critically examines the ambiguous potentials of solarities, plural, situated, and often contradictory. I found this project interesting for a number of reasons. One is that it's collectively written. There are two editors, Aisha Vimuri and Darren Barney, but there is many contributors. So I like that collective aspect of the work. But also I think it really visits in a complex way some of the major challenges that we face right now all across the world, which is the transition from fossil fuels. What does that actually look like technically? What are projects that can unfold that not only challenge this dependency on fossil fuels, but also seek to have a different alignment of political, social, and cultural organization. How we organize society has been so shaped by this dependency on fossil fuels, and that is, of course, tied to a colonial capitalist framework. So what does social organization look like beyond fossil fuels? And Solarities is an interesting project, this book, because it looks at this. So I'm happy to share this conversation with Aisha here on Free City Radio. Here it is. So I'm Aisha Vimri. I'm a PhD candidate in communication studies at McGill University. And um, the reason I'm here is because I co-edited this book, this little book called Solarities, Seeking Energy Justice. I edited it along with my supervisor, Darren Barney, but the book itself is authored by the After Oil Collective, um, which is a group of academics, activists, practitioners um, of various kinds, so artists, journalists, um, and so on, who came together a few years ago in 2019 um, to, to around something called the uh, After Oil School. And um, so this, so quickly, the After Oil School is something that's organized by the Petrocultures Research Group, um, which is a scholarly project that um, people who work on petro, uh, on oil in one way or another, oil in society, oil in politics, um, they, there's a big conference called the Petrocultures Conference every two years. So in the off year, they started to think about what it might look like to think about life beyond petrocultures, right? So the After Oil One um, was the first experiment, but apparently it, it ended up focusing a lot on petroculture because it was hard to get away from it. Um, so for the second one, which Darren um, decided to organize in, here in Montreal, <clears throat> um, they, they decided to kind of provisionally nominate um, solar as one possible life beyond petrocultures. So what would a what would a world that you know where solar energy was the primary energy source look like? What kinds of problems or affordances does that bring us? 
um, what kind of material like shifts need to happen, what kinds of you know infrastructural transformations or social transformations, economic transformations, um, cultural shifts need to happen in order for solar to become the the primary fuel as well as what happens once it already is, right? Like what what does that world look like? Um, those are the kind of like the big question around which we we gathered and um, and then we invited after the so the group itself like the the school itself was many conversations and then once the little summer school ended we invited all the participants to submit um, a short reflection responding to one of three prompts right i i don't remember the prompts um right away but like i think one of them had to do with scale another had to do with politics and a third was just a sort of an open thing that people could submit um a reflection on solar energy and so we got about 50 something responses and then darren and i yeah (laughs) and then darren and i worked together to compile them into something like like a singularly authored text um we ran the text by all of the all the people who submitted uh, multiple times to make sure that they were happy with it because you know you uh when you have 50 different authorial voices you have to edit quite a bit to change it um so out of that came this little book that is um published by the the University of Minnesota Press. They have this little series called Forerunners um which is meant to be sort of works in progress um works that are provocative um and and also meant to be something that's not so academic that is intended for a larger public so uh what i love about this press is that you can read the book online for free um and it's it's sort of more accessible than a lot of a lot of uh scholarly presses tend to be so i really i was so happy when they uh chose to when they accepted for, uh, our little manuscript so just rewinding a little bit when you talk about petroculture, I think it'd be interesting to dig into this a bit, uh, just uh, as a starting point of critique, because there is, you know, a lot of different people will be hearing this interview in different places. So I think there's an understanding of the ways that oil and gas are contributing to climate change. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, justified worry about that so can you connect that with this idea of the cultural influence of of you know oil and gas in terms of what you're critiquing right because there's there's the material dependency but there's also an effect on cultures you know in whether it's in north america turtle island or around the world and i think having that initial sort of understanding uh is important Absolutely. So I I should preface this by saying I am not an expert on petrocultures. Uh, I I'm not a part of this big collective. Um, I'm I was involved in this in the side project, but I'm not someone who works on petroculture. So my answer will be um, kind of basic. You know, there there are 
like people like Darren or uh, Imre Seaman or the other organizers of the conference are definitely better placed to talk about this. But um, quickly, the idea is that any systems of power, including obviously energy, have a deep cultural signification. So, um, you know, like while while oil has a primary role to play in industry or automobiles or things like that, it's not limited to fuel. It seeps into cultural imaginary, into kind of um, artistic production, into, um, yeah, like movies, films, books, things like that not only in terms of like appearing as like represented in these things but also like film like film itself materially is made from plastic which is again a petrochemical pro uh uh product uh similarly you know cassette tapes or something like that so it's actually in our world the way that it is right now it's impossible to separate the material realities of petrol or oil from all of our cultural production, both in terms of representation as well as materiality. Um, so I think that's what petrol cultures as a whole responds to, right? Like you can't actually imagine oil painting without some sort of uh, petrochemical process. Um, so things like that are, are what scholars who work in this large field called petrocultures are responding to. Um, and, and so when it comes to something like solarity, it's, it's you know, thinking, well, what, what would a solar culture look like, right? What kinds of ways... Um, so, so, for instance, in petrocultures, people talk about a certain kind of way in which governance organizes itself, right? Because of the way that economic power has congealed around oil or political power has congealed around oil, it, it requires certain kind of hierarchies and so on, um, which may or may not be present in a solar culture. Right. You, you don't really have like a small community owned oil field, for instance. Um, it usually tends to be big multinational corporations or state corporations that have monopolies over the oil production of a certain place. Um, whereas with solar, there actually are a lot of examples of both state owned large-scale solar farms, say in India or China, um, or increasingly in other parts of the world, um, as well as small community-owned solar, solar, um, solar-powered villages or, you know, small towns or something like that. So, so that's one of the reasons why we were interested in this question of what solar might do, because there's some ways in which big solar does sort of mimic big oil, right, um, in terms of the kinds of social organizings and political groupings that it, it seems to evoke. In other ways, it doesn't. It disrupts that model. So um, that's why it was an interesting question to turn to solar. There's a lot of points to draw from this, um, so thank you. I think just first of all, um, when we uh, think about... Um, the project of creating 
solar energy alternatives. One of the things I liked in this book was that I could really feel sort of almost the... Why I like the text where you were describing the relationship between the sun and the earth and sort of like the sort of material reality of... Like not in terms of, of product, but in terms of earth as a place in the universe and the sun. And sort of like... It, I just liked... The, thinking about that on a cultural level because you talked about like oil culture um, and I think a lot of that has been about the disembodied experience right just in terms of people having um, cultural experiences that are not connected to the earth or by extension our place in the solar system and and you sort of talk a bit about in, in these texts, you get that sense of like Earth in relation to the sun. So could we just go into that a little bit? Because I think it's always important for people to, to reflect on that, including myself. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I think what's interesting about solar is that we have always already been solarian, right? Like life on Earth as we know it uh, wouldn't be possible without the sun like the sun is the basis of like so it already is the fuel <laughs> um so in some ways like when we're thinking about you know what would life look like on earth powered by the sun it's like well we've already always known it <laughs> um so there's something kind of basic about turning to the sun like there's something almost elemental about it uh, because we already have a relationship with the sun everywhere on earth, right? Sometimes it's a relationship of, uh, of I don't know, like not enough sun <laughs> at certain times of the year um, or, or sort of a relationship of the absence of sun where there's a lot of darkness, um, or a relationship of too much sun, especially now with climate change, um, where you have increasingly heat waves around the world. Um, but then obviously our world is so structured right now by agriculture. So in many ways, that's like the original harnessing of solar energy, if you think about it, um, in terms of like a, a human powered, you know, kind of, gathering of solar energy and storing it or consuming it later or something like that like there's a way in which agriculture functions um in in many you know instances as a kind of a battery right um or you could think about it like that but it also <clears throat> it invites us to you know bask in it the sun i mean um it invites us to run from it to shelter from it so the sun has already pervaded cultural imagination from the beginning right of the beginning of of any kind of recorded uh cultural history around the globe so i find that fascinating is it's not turning to something new something that's technologically novel um or it is but but not only that right so like solar panels are storing you know having these massive solar fields um you know where you 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 witness a kind of a technological 
um, the prowess of you know India or China or uh, I keep thinking of those two because they have such like the scale is so grand and they're trying to kind of claim uh, a kind of a leadership uh, in solar in the globe so I keep thinking of those because those images pop up to me but um, around the world people are are implementing these massive solar fields like in deserts and so on so you do have the kind of novelty and newness and innovation you know and technological prowess part of it but you also have this kind of basic elemental um need for the sun right like we literally cannot survive without the sun um and and or like the the world as we know it life on earth would not be the way it is without the sun so there's something both that's so like known to us that's so intimately a part of us and then some and so it becomes something that feels like you naturally turn towards it as a replacement for fossil fuels um but obviously that comes with with other questions you know because solar panels aren't grown <laughs> they're made and they're made with materials that are mined from the earth so again that's another like connection with the earth and the sun is like we do need mediating um, infrastructures and those infrastructures are made out of materials that require very similar extractive processes um, to to petrochemical cultures right so it uh, maybe not similar but uh, or they're different but it still requires extraction and it can still take on extremely um, harmful forms so there sometimes in literature or even in in political speech when we talk about the sun sometimes there's a way in which it's like this is the ultimate clean energy because the sun the sun's energy is freely received all over earth right and sure that's true the you know we we don't um need that to be mediated but in order to harness it and store it and power you know air conditioners and uh homes and you know internet and so on that requires mediation and so um yeah that we need to interrupt like both like accept the kind of naturalness of the sun but then interrupt that when it comes to solar fuel one thing i think could be important just to hear about is some of the collective actions and projects that you describe in the book maybe you could just talk a, a bit about that yeah totally um there were two cases uh, that really stood out to us as a group that came up both in the summer school and then we felt like they, they had to be mentioned here. Um, so one of them is the, the Pitapan solar, uh, solar project, I guess. I forget the exact name of it, but it's in a, um, an indigenous... Maybe I can find actual text so that I'm not... Um, misrepresenting it in any way. Sorry, just give me a second. Yeah, so it's this Pitapan solar project in Little Buffalo, Alberta. So what one thing that's amazing about it is that it's um, occurring in the kind of heart of petrocultures in Canada, in Alberta, very close to the to where the tar sands are. So um, 
so that's interesting to find like the the flourishing of something like a solar project um right where people say you must mine for for more petrochemicals right um and so this is this particular project was launched in uh launched by the Lubicon Lake Band which is a Cree speaking community in the village of Little Buffalo Alberta and um it's only about a 5 hour drive from Edmonton and um so we had a representative uh Meliso Melina sorry Melina Labucan Massimo who's the founder of Sacred Earth Solar and she brought or she's a member of the community who together they decided to to implement a solar energy um field or a project in their home and i guess what's really interesting about it is that the members of the community not only came together to decide to put it there but where to put it then were trained in the maintenance and running of the solar project and continue to kind of own it right so there is a it's bringing self-reliance to the community not only in terms of the energy that it's producing but also in terms of like being not relying on the grid right and being able to run all of the components of the solar project by themselves um i thought that was i mean or all of us were were very uh interested by that because it's this bringing this possibility of energy justice so justice in its most kind of capacious sense where it's not only about um being ecologically uh cleaner or better but also about being socially and politically um more just more egalitarian more inclusive right um and bringing power to people who have traditionally been um been oppressed and been kind of uh cut away you know have that power taken away from them in multiple ways both in terms of actual energy fuel but um also otherwise so that was one of the the major projects the other one uh that I'm not sure we talk about that deeply in this book because it's been written about so extensively is called solar darity and it's in a black community in the US where uh the community decided to uh replace like it was it was kind of notorious for um being kind of unsafe i guess after dark and so the community replaced all of the street lighting by solar which seems a fairly simple thing but it really altered their relationship to their own um to their own homes right it made it again community owned um community run and it was the community doing something for the betterment of themselves so it's again this like sense of self-reliance so um so that's re- like those are the kind of positive possibilities of solar i think especially when you have small scale community owned and community run solar projects it gives you a real sense of how that can shift um the relationship with state power or um or just like kind of empower oppressed communities right um so i think that that's those were really positive ex- uh, examples for us to turn to and then there's another one in the book that i think is worth kind of juxtaposing to these 
which is um, a solar project in India, there was um, <coughs> this news article that came out that kind of showed how villagers were, I, I it portrayed them as being um, superstitious and uh, basically just like illiterate people not knowing what they're doing and breaking solar panels, right? And um, as it turned out, the, the news was basically misrepresenting them. The reason that the villagers were breaking the solar panel was not due to superstition, but because solar, the, the panels required um, vast amounts of water to keep them clean. Because as soon as you have dust or uh, dirt on a solar panel, it greatly reduces the amount of energy that is captured. So um, this was a state-run solar project in a village in India that was um, put there without their consent, right? Without their prior consent and um, required uh, the diversion of big amounts of irrigation water, water intended for irrigation. So the, far, the, the villagers, who were mostly farmers, broke the solar panels because they, they said that the solar project was diverting water away from their fields. And the project wasn't giving energy back to the village where, the, where it was situated. In, instead, the energy was being redirected elsewhere. So I think like that's a really kind of uh, important or like it's a very illustrative example of the ways in which solar can go, um, can, can actually reproduce a lot of the problematic, oppressive and um, yeah, just belittling, ten, you know, environmentally destructive tendencies that, that we see in petrocultures. So it's not that because solar is cleaner um, as a fuel that it's necessarily cleaner, um, I mean, or it, because solar is cleaner when it comes to the earth that it's necessarily cleaner when we harness it. That has been a conversation with Aisha Vermuri, who co-edited a book called Solarity, Seeking Energy Justice. And it was put together by a collective of people after Oil Collective. It included many contributions. You can find that book. Uh, there's a free PDF download. And also, it is a physical book, which you can order from the University of Minnesota Press. I will put the link in the description of the program, which you can find on our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Free City Radio is hosted and produced by me, Stefan Christoph, and we air on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, on CJLO 1690 a.m. in Geodiage, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 p.m., on CKUW 95.9 FM FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, B.C. on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. on Met Radio 12.80 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays and on CKCU 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. We are also a podcast. Look us up on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for being with us, and I will speak to you next week.